When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I'm joined this week by a new guest, suave, debonair, perhaps a little dangerous. Who is this international man of mystery sitting in the co-host seat across from me? You know, I feel really awkward about that introduction because I look more like Dr. Evil than I do anything swab and debonair. Oh, oh no. Oh man. Bald white guy. My my pinky has already made it to my mouth. I'm looking for my Mr. Bigglesworth hairless cat, but there's nowhere to be found. It's just me. And it's, it's, it's it's not so suave. Oh man. Now, now I'm, my entire plan for the introduction is, is ruined. I was going to make a joke about grotesque facial scars or evil looking pets. And now I can't do that. So we'll just do this the old fashioned way. I am joined by Don Shanahan. He is going to be my co-host for this week. Thanks for coming on the show, Don. I'm, I'm really glad to have you here. Kevin, thank you for having me. I'll do my best not to make any facial scars of myself during this show. And that way it stays nice and clean. Well, who, who knows what'll happen? We'll see where the show takes us. Listeners, we do have a great show coming up for you today. We'll be reviewing Daniel Craig's swan song as the iconic British super spy 007 in No Time to Die on episode 308 of Seeing and Believing. This episode of Seeing and Believing is sponsored in part by NavPress, publisher of Eugene Peterson's Symphony of Salvation. A lot of you listeners are probably familiar with the message, which was initially created by Peterson. As Peterson was working on the message, he also meticulously crafted introductions for each book of the Bible, and Symphony of Salvation collects those readings into a full-color 60-day devotional journey. These introductions are not cold or utilitarian. They're meant to be soaked in. Peterson acts as an insightful guide, pointing out all the important physical details, personalities, and controversies of an ancient world that God loved. The book invites you to lean back and reflect on these insights and the compelling portrait of God speaking directly to your everyday life. You can read it as a devotional, one introduction at a time, or have it on hand when you start reading a new book of the Bible to quickly find your footing in that book's context. Visit navpress.com to get your copy of Symphony of Salvation. Yes, we're here on episode 308 of Seeing and Believing, and like I said, I am joined by a new guest this week. We bade farewell to Wade last week, and it was quite a send-off, but we always move forward, and I'm excited to be talking with Don about a very big release that's been a long time in the making. But before we get to that, I guess we should probably uh, introduce our illustrious guest. Don is the founder of the movie site Every Movie Has a Lesson. He also writes for 25 Years Later, and he even has his own podcast project titled Cinephile Hissy Fit, co-hosted with Will Johnson, and that's part of the Ruminations radio network. Don and I are also both uh, fellow members of the Chicago Indie Critics Organization up here in Chicago. So it's really great to have him on the show. Don, welcome on to Seeing and Believing. Kevin, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Wade Bearden, if you're listening, you are a tough act to follow. Your send-off show last week was wonderful. Really enjoyed all the notes and anecdotes that you guys put together, the highlights, the lowlights, and it was a, it's a joy <laughs> to – I mean, it's always a joy to catch your show, but at the same time uh, to – get a chance to kind of to fly be a fly in the wall as a listener is one thing but to sit here in this in the seat and try to kind of keep up with y'all will be will be a high challenge so wade you're a tough act to follow yeah well you know as long as you don't disagree with me on something like the shape of water i think <laughs> i think we'll be okay I, oh my gosh 
hilarious segment last time. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm also curious to know, uh, uh, before we jump into the review about this, uh, podcast project, mm-hmm. I mentioned it cinephile hissy fit. That's quite a title. And, yes. you know, since we're talking about disagreeing with our co-hosts, I'm curious if you <laughs> yes. can tell us a little bit about that. No. Yeah. The dynamic of this show is meant to be two critics who co- disagree often and argue all the time. So Will Johnson is a Phoenix based film critic. Shout out to Will. He, uh, also writes at 25. Well, he is a boisterous, a uh, burly man. He also a fellow school teacher and a, and a fellow dad. And he is a Marvel shill, a hot take artist of many things. He's a loosey goosey, loud guy. And I end up being the, the Jack lemon straight man where I, the, I am this, you know, press credentialed semi, you know, I think I'm a refined critic or at least more refined than the usual. So we have this love and hate kind of situation where our format is, uh, five minutes of a kind of uninterrupted take for one person, five minutes uninterrupted take for the other. And we kind of have a, an, a mutual kind of 15 minute kind of hissy fit between the two of us to kind of see who kind of lands a little, a few more body blows, a few more jabs, a few more punches about who's a little bit more right. And who's a little bit more wrong with the take we have on the film. That's of that given episode. Occasionally we have kind of a bit of a double hate or a double love edition, or we kind of do some deep cuts, but our show's kind of evolved to kind of, we thought we would be more half hour and kind of tidy about our little fist fights. My co-host can't stop talking. So we, we were <laughs> starting to stretch ourselves out to almost 50 minutes to an hour. And I wish we weren't that long, but it's always uh, a fun, uh, expl- you know, explicit conversation of bad, poor language and bad taste that goes back and forth between the two of us. Because as much as I get into a hissy fit about how much I dislike the tree of life, he'll get into a hissy fit about how much he dislikes something I love and it's it's a good dynamic and we're having a good time and uh, we're starting to kind of get a good flow. We're starting to introduce a few more guests into the show and uh, we got enough episodes banked where it's not a complete rush. So we're, we're in the swing of things. Wow, I mean that that sounds really intense. I, I'm I'm kind of hopeful since it sounds like you've been really training with Will, so to speak. It's kind of like mm-hmm. a, a rocky scenario where yeah. you guys are are you know constantly sparring. So I'm I'm kind of a little bit scared for my own bodily safety here uh, as as we're recording. <laughs> so I hope that we don't disagree too strenuously right. Remember, about this movie. Facial scars, you know, b- bad animal cats. It's all going down that toilet. Oh man, yikes! Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see what what the future holds in store for us with this episode. We are, of course, listeners, talking about the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. It's coming out uh, this weekend, actually. Uh, as this podcast airs, it should be hitting theaters. With No Time to Die, Daniel Craig is back for his fifth and final turn as James Bond. The new film picks up almost right where the previous film, Spectre, left off. Bond has left the MI6 spy agency behind to live under the radar with his lady love from Spectre, Madeline Swan, played by Leia Seydoux. But the past, both Bond's and Madeline's, is still very much alive with all its darkness seemingly collected in the shadowy figure of a new villain, played by Rami Malek. Soon Bond finds himself drawn against his will back into the world of spy agencies, apocalyptic superweapons, and high-tech gadgets. Of course, this is a Bond film after all. This time, though, he has to reckon with issues that are new for the franchise. Is James Bond a relic who's out of place in a significantly changed world? And where does this older Bond store up his treasures? So, Don, there's really an effort with this new film to pull together all the story threads of the previous Daniel Craig franchise entries and bring them to some sort of resolution or at least some sort of culmination Mm -hmm. of all the Bond movies. It's the one that relies most on what has happened in Bond's story up to this point. So my question for you is, did this approach to the Craig era's final chapter leave you shaken or stirred? Ooh, I'm going to say stirred because I've been a big fan of this arc that they've been been able to create for the last 15 years where I didn't know this was possible with Bond. I know in novel form, these, the, this character has endured and has had his own little adventures, but everything on the cinematic side, going all the way back to Sean Connery always felt like dalliances where they were, you know, like a dalliance does, it you know, kind of burns hot and moves with excitement, but it extinguishes itself quickly because there's not a lot of depth. It's, you know, throwaway standalone stories. So for them to kind of grab that post 9-11 progressive change that was needed to take kind of a cold air, cold war era killer and adapt him 
with a new leading man who was more tough than suave with Daniel Craig. I'm stunned how much they were able to kind of take this antiquated character and kind of strip him back down to the foundation to the studs and really start over. And I'm equally amazed because the writers who did that were Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who delivered the last two Pierce Brosnan Bond films, which might be the most excessively gaudy of the excessively (laughs) gaudy area era. So for those same writers to kind of, I don't know, push new discipline or find kind of a way to be like, Hey, how can we improve upon what's here? And I look at the landscape of, of film that this had to re-enter in 2006 and that's you know it's post ethan hunt it's post jason bourne and can bond just be a you know a womanizing killer and get away with it in today's era and the truth is he couldn't so the change that i see the most is by giving him a little bit more depth and something that's not a throwaway mission the way it is in an ethan hunt mission impossible movie you've got this arc that you can really build some substantial weight on it. I did not see this coming. I, I I know you had that kind of two-part origin story with Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace that felt like it kind of opened and closed that Vesper kind of wake that, that was kind of created by Eva Green's character in the first film. But then Skyfall kind of is that transition point where like, whoa, we're really going to stick with this and do something big and, and always build at the same time as still having standalone adventures and all the great excitement. So... I did not think a full, meaty, substantial, and fulfilling character arc was possible with this character. And this movie, like you said, has stirred it to the point where this is a finely, you know, a a fine cocktail of great ingredients that is, like you said, stirred instead of shaken because you took your time. You didn't rush it. You didn't overly make it gaudy. You didn't blow things up for blowing things up sake. You hired great filmmakers along the way. Oh my goodness. Sam Mendes had two films in this series and he's fantastic. And you have Daniel Craig this whole time, you know, playing his age, playing his toughness. But I I'm, I'm absolutely amazed that they were able to build this character up and take it to places it's never been before. Yeah, you. I mean, you're definitely right that this is this feels like a bond that is reconfigured for the age of of the MCU, the age of where you know inter the film franchises are interconnected. There's lots of moving mm-hmm. pieces that are kind of woven into a cohesive whole. You know, whereas previous Bond movies, it was kind of episodic. It was more just about the the adventure in front of us rather than trying to, you know, tie Absolutely. everything together into a cohesive canon. It's much more uh, Craig Bond really went in that direction and tried to not just imagine what Bond looks like in a, you know, a new modern world post 9-11, kind of that world order, mm-hmm. but also what does a franchise as venerable as bond like just what does that franchise itself look like in this new movie making landscape and you definitely see that new approach here at this new film now i i'm probably going to differ a little bit with you and and i hope that we don't get into the body blows too quickly (laughs) you bet in that i don't know that this new chapter is is fully satisfying to me there's a lot of interesting stuff in the air and and i'm sure we'll get into this about Mm. you know the theme of family that's running Mm. through the um the these various uh daniel craig bond films the the idea that there's there's some sort of dysfunction at the heart of bond that the act of super spying almost is is there to interact with that mm-hmm. to, to fill in some way um and there's i i think that in a lot of ways even though i i think the action in casino royale is great i think the increasing bornification of action sequences and later mm-hmm. entries like quantum of solace don't work so well i think overall though it's an interesting place to take this character in the franchise i think in the end though where this film falls down for me is that it almost feels like um, a lot of it, it feels like it's bending over backwards to tie all of those loose threads into a neat little bow and maybe kind of trips over its own feet while it does that. I can second that to a large degree because this is a very long movie. You know, it's the longest Bond film they've done. And I feel like if to kind of call back to the idea of canon and how they've interlaced and built what they've done, it felt like 
uh, you know, a film and a half ago. Well, I guess it's just one film ago. Um, it felt like the peak you were looking for, the thing that was all, you know, the or- that was orchestrating everything that was interconnecting all these movies was Christoph Waltz's character of Blofeld. And to have him be, I, I get the end of Spectre, you want to have him apprehended, but of course not killed. So the, the orchestrations and puppeteering can still can continue. But to have, to have Spectre, which was built to be this big, huge thing, be kind of pushed aside by this very kind of frail, questionable, and not as thick and, and as, as developed of a villain with Malick's villain that I, I feel like you already peaked in terms of the villain and the threat department. This is just the the inevitable – I don't want to say the inevitable, but this is that progressive – accident or elevation that kind of has to be there just to kind of get your culmination and your ending without really having the substance that you built up so well because i thought i know christoph waltz is a professional movie villain that we've seen him do the bad guy thing time and again in in lesser things and in better things but you know that was the right character to me in in terms of the canon and all that to build up in that kind of way where i would have rather had Blofeld part two here than Rami Malek. Rami Malek, fantastic, interesting actor, but his character is not given the investment and growth the way that Blofeld's was to be this, to be the, you know, the big last threat. And along the way, you kind of have that thing where, you know, it's you with this movie being so long and having this chase for the MacGuffin of choice, which is this DNA, you know, virus weaponized thing of a bobber it <laughs> just you know you know it's it's a super weapon yeah the, yeah the specifics almost don't even matter no it doesn't matter so it, it is challenging that if i felt like the peak the peak was already had been done because you know javier bardem was just so darn good in skyfall and the ramifications of who was his puppeteer ended up being christoph waltz and now it's the we're going to eliminate specter because of this one guy who has this thing that can maybe shut everybody down and i just don't buy it his arc or his revelation of what it comes out of his evil chrysalis it, it comes so far late in the film that it kind of doesn't matter you're kind of you know all right let's get on with it let's you know are we getting a climax or not and and you get here to him and it's just not that good and you're arguing about little things instead of big things and i don't know if it's not that worthwhile at it, least on that end i'm with you there yeah it, i mean it does it just seems like there's there's a lot going on with this film and a lot of it uh, I mean, long-time listeners of the show know that I'm a little grumpy about the MCU, and and one of the the reasons I am isn't because I I hate superheroes per se, but it's more that the the need to sort of tie everything together into the single universe and make sure that there is an explicit payoff for for everything, and mm-hmm. and that uh, the seeds are planted for future payoffs down the line results in these these projects that feel like there's an interesting kernel that's surrounded by a lot of cruft sure. that just I think, weighs it all down i think what the saving grace that keeps this from being the to the maybe bloated level that the mcu has become is that we're still just sticking kind of with james bond more than anything i'm taking this to kind of i'm taking this five arc 15 year journey here to be just a really nice extended miniseries of uh, you know the kind of that full you know beginning of career to end of career kind of thing where that's a nice singular arc that can have enough things that you know are stuck to it and gravitate to enough branches here enough branches there without being a universe like it'd be different if like tom cruise showed up with from mission impossible going you know hey james how you doing or if jason Bourne tips his hat in a german bar somewhere like hey james how you doing like that would getting that would be getting grosser in the universe department i like that this this character has enough rich side characters around like Jeffrey Wright's character of Felix Leiter has been there for a while here and there as kind of that that helpful American side person. You have Ray Fiennes who you know grew into the Emerald after Judy Dench was there. Money Penny was developed in an organic way where there's enough little characters that a continuing series isn't a bad thing without going full universe. And the interconnectivity for me, I appreciate it because it didn't go, go full universe and it just stayed as a thickening of the single thing you had going until you run out of like, like because this movie gets long and, and I'm not a fan of Rami Malek's meager villain, but the alluring mystique that he kind of has feels too little too late. I'm, but well, I'm happy this is short of full universe. Well, well, it's, okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Malek's villain. His, his mm-hmm. character is, is, Named very cover, 
colorfully uh, Lucifer Safin. So, I mean, yeah. that's obviously, you know, no, zero points for figuring out what exactly that's supposed to be. A, yeah, he'll, a, he'll never a be an early color. childhood teacher with a name like that. Nope. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, but, you know, I... I th- I think that his character his the the villain is actually a pretty strong idea uh, the by the time we get to his he has this um this lair that's built on an abandoned island you know yeah. in the tradition of all great bond villains you know, it's got kind of this this forbidding aspect to it and he's got kind of this gimmick where he's got a poison garden and acid swimming pools and there's there's all this <laughs> intrigue around him yeah. but like you observed earlier all of that is really crammed into what, like the last half hour of the film and it just doesn't have any time to, to breathe. And I think that's partly a function of the fact that this is Daniel Craig's last film. He's not going to be around to have a payoff to the Blofeld arc really explore in depth. He's not going to be around for long enough to see what Rami Malek's for, for Rami Malek's character to get an entire film laser focused on him. So for me, it felt kind of like we were moving from plot point to plot point mm-hmm. and there wasn't really time to flush out any of them in, in a fully satisfying way. I, I The heroes get their flushing out for sure. It's the villains that don't. Yeah, I, Like I said, I would, if you would have had Rami Malek as kind of that, that one B villain or that, that I don't want to say the right hand man, but the, the force that brings Blofeld back because that's the, that's Jim Bond's eternal villain from childhood kind of thing. Like if that was the guy, that undid it all at the end instead of just this random force that emerges that's Rami Malek in a very quiet and slow-played kind of way. I'd, I'd buy that a little bit more than this one. So I went with you there on that. I, I want to talk a little bit because we we did uh, give some mention to the theme of family mm-hmm. that, uh, that runs through this picture. And I want to give a, a little bit of a hat tip to uh, film critic Ryan Holt. Uh, listeners know that he's been on the show in the past to talk about Bond with us. He's He knows a ton about Bond, and I enjoy his writing on Bond quite a bit. But uh, Ryan had this grand unified theory, uh, and, and we'll link this article in the show notes, but this grand unified theory that the Daniel Craig Bond films are ultimately about family. In the early mm-hmm. films, of course, you know, M, Judy Dench's M is sort of the surrogate mother figure. She's an explicitly mother figure, as we find out in Skyfall. And Mm -hmm. various other characters throughout these films have kind of served as surrogate family members or foils for Bond's own family issues in themselves. And I think one of the things that was so so shocking to me about this film is that bond really they, they lean hard into that into that family dynamic here where mm-hmm. the film opens and bond is is paired off with a woman he he tells her he loves her which i you know i'm not mm-hmm. a huge bond expert but i'm not sure if that's ever happened in a bond movie before where he seems to be genuinely in love with someone on screen tells right. her he loves her really seems into building a traditionally domestic life with her um there's we do have that we do have that old classic bond film of her uh, the only george lasby one where bond gets married in the last he, he does get married but does he does he actually say the words i love you on screen that, oh, i can't remember now i gotta dig deep for that one i mean and i it, bond historians know that that marriage does not last very long and right yeah so no i, mean, I, yeah. The I love you the i love you line is a big deal and it's definitely different for here and he 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 doesn't just say I love you. He says it in French. He says je t'aime. So I mean, you know, this is a very mm-hmm. different bond than we're than we're used to. So I'm curious to get your take on yeah. on on the the themes of family that suffuse this film and uh, the way that it works as a whole. I think I boil it down, and I put this in my review where I said this is really the idea of being given value to love over pleasure. You know, James Bond has always been built, or at least, you know, in the heroic sense of the old school films on the conquest and the Bond girls. And who who does he get to who does he get to spend time with now? Who's his arm candy? Who's that woman in bed with him? And we don't get a ton of that in this Daniel Craig series. We have a little bit or, though you know, obviously Ava Green's Vesper was the one that started it all in terms of, you know, kind of spoiling Bond and that whole level of, all right, you, if you're going to do a, if you're going to have a conquest, you're going to pay for it. It's going to have some consequences and ramifications that still last all the way until this film. But the idea is that you have, there's always that cliche phrase of, you know, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm a fighter, not a lover. 
the fun part about this version of James Bond with Daniel Craig is that you have made a lover and a fighter. You have this expert, amazing killer who is really good at his job, even with the the pits and pits and pratfalls that come with, you know, sometimes he's on the job, sometimes he's breaking the rules, all the tip, all the typical irascible spy stuff. But the intimate human relationships end up being what he's making his true sacrifices for, because we don't we don't see a lot of. Obviously, there's always a MacGuffin thing that saves the day for queen and country. But what he's really, really, really throwing himself out there for are are the people in his life. Those are the ones he's really putting his neck out for. And that meant all those those levels of maturation that have been built. These five films are just really impressive to me because, you know, you've got a uh, you've got kind of the cultivated roots and the familial feels kind of replace the, the old drive, like I said, and. Yeah, the I feel like that investment they made to put value into love over pleasure has exceeded because you have a thicker, richer, more realistic possible character than just, you know, the Lothario with a gun. Right. The, there's that line that uh, during confrontation with uh, Malik's villain, um, uh, Rami Malik's uh, safe, safe and says, uh, tells Bond that you and I are poisoned by heartbreak, mm-hmm. which I, I think is just cool such line. a uh, it's a really great line. Um, and I think one reason it hits home is because it does highlight how these Craig films have deviated a little bit from the Bond formula where, you know, all um all emotional attachment is short-lived. I mean, like we said, he doesn't really tell any of the women he beds, I love you. He, mm-hmm. he at times seems maybe incapable of love. Um, yeah. All of the, all of the sex is consequence free. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't settle down and have a family. Nobody, mm-hmm. you know, once a bond girl has her time with him in one film, she's not in the next film. It's just moving on to the next thing. Uh, the, the people that he kills, like there's never really, uh, any sense that they're anything other than obstacles for him to to overcome? Are you and, talking about old school stuff or the new school stuff? Uh, the old school stuff. I mean, yes, I'm again, right there with you. like with Craig, uh, especially in Casino Royale, you know that early chase scene where he's you know trying to catch that one guy, uh, mm. and you know he's breaking through walls and destroying a construction yeah. site. I mean, that sort of collateral damage isn't new for the franchise, but the way that it's framed. Uh, is, as I thought, very different. It's, again, sort of like a post-9-11 Bond. And I think the the Craig films kind of acting in that way is very interesting. The, mm-hmm. the idea that Bond in this, in this embodiment, in Craig's embodiment, is sort of his commitment to violence, lies, and, you know, like you said, queen and country has borne a lot of bitter fruit. And mm-hmm. it has literally poisoned him, as we yeah. see in that confrontation with him and the villain. And I think that's a, a really interesting angle for for the movie to take on him. Yeah, I think another way I, I say it, or I, I kind of frame it in my head, is like the invincibility that was always there in the carefree 60s and 70s and 80s stuff has kind of given way to, can we make this character vulnerable? And the vulnerability that remolds this character is incredible because we've seen him in 15 years, you know, lose his fair share of scuffles and fights. You know, he ramifications linger and last longer. You know, the guy gets beat up and has scars, scars that still show up a couple movies later. And, you know, those life altering consequences kind of emphasize personal stakes that normally aren't there because it's oh, <laughs> let's go on to the next thing. I just picture Roger Moore's voice every single time when something inexplicably painful should happen that he just bounces right up for. So we, <laughs> we see just uh, I think that's also like you were saying, the that is the post Jason Bourne, Ethan Hunt world where you have. You know, sweat and grime and, you know, and blood because, you know, it's not as it's not a genuinely killing thing anymore. It's it's dirty and it's ugly. And and the characters around him of authority let him know about that. And but at the same time, I feel like that is also what steers him back to. I do all of these really horrible things. Where is any footing I can get to feel more normal and not as driven by the dark stuff that he does? And when and. I keep going back to Vesper because it's still the thing that shows up here. But when he was burned that first time, it's made him, like you said, poisoned enough to not really get back to that until we get to Madeline Swan here. So it's a really, I like the arc that it has been to get to this point. 
Yeah, and it, it, it does seem like this this movie is really trying to position him as as a relic, as a dinosaur. You know, the mm. one of the fun little uh, subplots that we get with with this film is uh, kind of this rivalry he has with uh, new 007, played by Lashana Lynch, a, mm-hmm. a black woman who has literally taken on the 007 mantle now that he has officially left MI6. And what that says about him, that he's kind of over the hill, we see in a lot of the action sequences. I mean, by the end, of course, he's still kind of this unstoppable killing machine Bond. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of wish that they had they had stuck with the the way that the action sequences in the middle of the film uh, happen. They, so they make a stop off in uh, Cuba. He meets up with a fellow agent played by Ana de Armas, who is great as always. Oh, yeah. And while, you know, she's wearing this, this elegant evening dress and, you know, using dual wielding uh, submachine guns and engaging all these acrobatic uh, fight, uh, fight moves against faceless henchmen, Craig's bond is sort of, he's, struggling with one guy and he's crashing through a skylight and he's kind of it's almost like he's getting lucky rather mm-hmm. than being the most skilled spy that Britain has to offer and in the climax where he's literally fighting with the villain in this abandoned uh forgotten uh missile silo it between Russia and Japan that you know kind of off in the middle of a sea that a lot of people don't go it's run down it's all gray concrete and mm-hmm. that's kind of him in his element it's hard yeah. not to see this film saying like bond is he is the past and the the world will move on he will get replaced and the sort of patriarchal white british man that we're used to in the role maybe that's not Bond's future. And that's kind mm-hmm. of interesting. I, I don't know that the I movie agree. really doubles down on that in a satisfying way, no, but it's interesting I, to see it go there. I, I don't think it doubles down either because I think this is still you still have to kind of have your hero save face because Craig, I feel like Craig is showing his age. You know, he was probably about he was 50 when he shot this finale. He's about 53 now. And it'd be his obviously he has a very chiseled unique look with his kind of face and all that and as much as that that, those chiseled features mark a strong resolve it kind of still shows weary age like when he stands next to Ana de Armas he looks like her dad you know when he stands next to the shuttle and she looks like her uncle it where and and I and luckily from a from a kind of a rank and an experience standpoint he is indeed that veteran and they play him as that but at the same time you're right he's still kind of he hits that Liam Neeson over 50 and I'm still going to kill everything gear when he needs to. And that's nice and convenient. And sure enough, the, the, you know, the stunt supervisor of this film is the guy who did take in. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, how, how can I move this borderline senior citizen around? And I don't ever want to call anybody who's 50 a senior citizen, but at the same time, I, I they don't, you're right. They don't double down. Like when he, well, I mean, to, Daniel Craig is you know, in better goes. shape than I will ever be. Oh my in, gosh. So. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Not going to, not going to cast any shade there, but yeah. uh, I am, I, I, I do. I, I'm glad that you brought up the, the stunt coordinator because I kind of want to talk about the filmmaking uh, angle of this as well. So this is directed by Carrie Joji Fukunaga, who, uh, you know, a lot of people will know from his work on on True Detective, the HBO series. That was kind of where he really had his breakthrough. But since then, you know, he's done uh, all sorts of projects. Uh, Beasts of No Nation was was really excellent. Um, and he he also direct. I think he directed it. Uh, the th- or no, he wrote, he wrote it. it. I'm sorry. He wrote it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but in any case, like it does seem watching this version. So the, the Sam Mendes films were very stately almost in, in a lot of their presentation. They, they still had that kind of bare knuckled Craig action aesthetic, but just the, the presentation, the cinematography was always immaculate. And it feels like Fukunaga has gone for, gone to something that seems a little bit more, uh, I guess, uh, gritty again, the, we get this. Yeah one action sequence where bond is fighting his way up some stairs and it's an extremely long action take which is mm-hmm. in a lot of ways a far cry from the more classically filmed uh, action yeah. sequences of, of other bonds which are more like traditional action cinema this seems to be trying to do something something different i guess with yeah. with bond action 
I have to credit that to the cinematographer they used. I mean, this is La La Land cinematographer Linus Sangren. And if you've watched La La Land, the the long take tracking camera that 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 he can employ on the cranes and you know, that long action sequence up the stairs where that camera is making those turns in those tight quarters around the action for a very long time. When I knew it was Sangren, I'm like, yep, there he goes. Because you're right. The stately cinematographers of the two Mendes films, you have, oh my gosh, you have Roger Deakins and Skyfall is the oh, prettiest man. Bond film you'll ever see in your life. Absolutely. And then, and then Hoyt Van Hotema, who did Spectre, no, you know, no slouch in his own right, but also more of the stately type. But Sangren here is super savvy and a modern guy who can still get your wide vista specialties because like that – that great scene in the Norwegian forest with the fog that mm. feels like a Deacons ish kind of scene you would get where a little more stately, a little more wider, a little more mysterious. And you can kind of weave between some trees. But then when you get to the close quarter stuff, like the action scenes in Cuba, or even the stuff on the boat um, with Felix, you, now you have Linus, you know, showing his chops because, and I'm impressed because this is the largest scale thing he's even ever done. Cause he's kind of a new man on the block with this sort of thing, but he is a talent that I've noticed a ton because La La Land from a filming standpoint, uh, blew me away to have that extra, to have that extra skill, because I'm I'm guessing on some behind the scenes future featurette, we'll see Linus there with the mega crane that he used, you know, to do, you know, in another land, <laughs> in another day of sun, just shooting through crazy scenes. So, yeah, and in a way, it does fit with, you know, I I, I love Roger Deakins. I think he is oh, the probably best. maybe the greatest living sim. I I. I don't I, know that I'm hard. enough of yeah. an expert to really make a pronouncement that he's the greatest living cinematographer, but he's up there. He's mm-hmm. wonderful. And yet that kind of real immaculate, almost painterly approach to the visuals maybe wouldn't have fit as well with the the ending that we get here yeah. with, with Bond. And maybe it, it seems maybe. like a send-off, yeah. Yeah, maybe like maybe you don't have that stairway fight, but you have that island looking more foreboding and more depth and a few more things here, a few more things there. But because you're right, the, by the time you're doing the acid pools and the weird little garden thing that that feels a little smaller than something Deacons would would light in the most, you know, in pastoral glow. So I, I would have been interested to see how oh, sure. Deacons would have would have shot the, you know, the the weird acid mm-hmm. water garden. I it, it's difficult I, to explain. And I don't know how to explain it either to folks when they ask. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, you know, it seems like a casualty of like, man, I just wish that mm-hmm. we had gotten Rami Malek an entire, you know, two hours sort of explore that that oh, yeah. stronghold. So it could be, you know, like the the volcano strongholds right. of, of the, the old school bond. You kind or, of cut away every now and then in this movie to bring you back to that island for some new thing he's doing and, you know, to build whatever plot he's got. Hey, in the same regard, in terms of kind of extra brawn, what did you think of Hans Zimmer's score? He's kind of a, that's a big hitter to come to the bond movie playpen here. Yeah. You know, Hans Zimmer, I think the, the score here is, is strong. It's, it's interesting because it does, you know, Zimmer plays the hits, right? Like we do have mm-hmm. the that uh, iconic Bond baseline when he finally arrives at MI6 and has to check in, and you know the person behind the desk doesn't even recognize him when he gives his mm-hmm. iconic Bond James Bond catchphrase. So Zimmer does um, find space for that in his score, but uh, this does not feel like the the sort of um, the same sort of bond soundtrack that again we might be used to from mm-hmm. uh the more uh conventional uh bond films i guess i think it's I it's pretty that. strong um and i also you know i'm glad to see that after w- what i thought was a pretty poor credit sequence inspector mm-hmm. that uh billy eilish is is on oh, hands to give us another yeah. another really great uh bond song to open things up i agree a knockout song yeah and again you know it's funny, you know, as we've been talking about this film, I still am not totally sold that this is a good Bond movie. Like, it doesn't mm. seem, it seems like there's just a little bit too much going on. It's bit off a little bit more than it can chew. But I do think that there's a lot of strong elements to this film that if, you know, maybe if it hadn't had the the 007 branding uh, might be, might might have worked a little bit better. Who knows? I'm with you. I think... 
that by going grand and going large, and obviously the interconnectedness we've been talking about, it, it I think they've gotten they. I don't want to say they've painted themselves in a corner. I don't want to use that expression, but I think we were always going to get something more, more epic than episodic in terms of what this big conclusion was going to be. So for it to not feel quote unquote like a Bond film, I was okay with because it felt like a Daniel Craig Bond film. Like we've been building to this, it'll get there. Now, like we said earlier, there's definitely some lag and some acceleration I'd rather have towards some payoffs that were a little bit more developed where it, it's, I don't want to, it's not a limit to the finish by any means. I think it's, I think it's a big grand send off that, that, that it deserved and it built properly to get, but yeah, it's, it is it the banger of bangers that's the you know because the hyperbole artists come out after these movies like oh my gosh that's the best Bond movie ever and i'm i'm never going to be that person so <laughs> yeah well it, it seems like there there's there's a weird in the closing minutes of this film and we're not going to s- spoil necessarily you know how it ends up but mm-hmm. there does seem to be sort of this myth-making impulse that mm-hmm. closes out the film that i guess maybe leaves a a bad taste in my mouth, not necessarily because there's, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a fan of movies that really engage with story and what the, the power of story is. I think that's interesting. Is it the right note for this particular iteration of bond where it's much more, like I said, gritty, bare knuckled, earthbound is, is he a a myth? (laughs) Is, Mm. Is that the sort of, uh, the thing that works for a character like Bond. I'm not sure that it is, but I'm curious yeah. to know what your take is on kind of that that closing grace note to, to I, this entry. I dig it because, it, yeah, it, when you think about it, this this is still the American Film Institute's number three all-time cinematic hero. It's James Bond. And for them to build something you know, less gaudy and less disposable and to make something meaty, you can hang your hat on. Like you can buy, if you were to Lord of the Rings, this series, these five films and watch them back to back, my goodness, would you get an arc? So (laughs) I I think they did. I think they built with the best bricks to make something mythic. And, and I, I feel like you reach a point where like, all right, well, where, how can this end? Does this end with sacrifice? Does this end with fulfillment? Does this end with closure? Like the different way I feel like this movie has a ballsy way of making an ending while at the same time being stately the way it is. I, I, we could, we could say more and we can offer other comparisons, but, uh, I, I like the note and the gear it hits in those last, that last 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, that is that is an interesting angle to take. And I'm actually curious uh, for our listeners, if you uh, have a chance to see this movie, uh, where you would fall on that continuum. Uh, this is obviously where we're butting up against the limits of, of spoiler free conversation, but mm-hmm. it is an intriguing closing to to a Bond film. And so I'm curious to get our listeners' thoughts once they've seen it. But for now, that is our review of No Time to Die. It is in theaters uh, starting this weekend and will probably be a a pretty big deal. So definitely if you can safely check it out, uh, you can do so in theaters all over the country. But for now, Don, we are reaching the end of our show. And this is traditionally a part of the show where each host brings a recommendation from the world of television or film that they they want to share with our listeners uh, and and really recommend that they they check out for themselves. So uh, I asked you to bring a, a recommendation for this part of the show. What do you got for mm-hmm. us today? I have well, kind of in honor of the the cast of characters that are kind of here in the R. James Bond conclusion here. Um, I'm a big fan of actor Ben Whishaw, who is wonderful as the the newly the younger you know Q that they've introduced into the series as the gadget man and he gets he gets off wonderful lines in the film of of just he, straight man banter versus the you know the big powerful people in the room and he still ends up being the smart guy they all need it's a bit of a stereotypical computer geek role but they've really made it more interesting and more unique because he's just such a charming guy and my goodness he's the voice of Paddington I mean he will never not be adorable so I was uh, presented a screener for a little indie film recently, and it had its cup of coffee at the Sundance Film Festival in 2020. It's a movie called Surge. And I, as a person who walked into it, you know, thinking, all right, Ben Wishaw, this ought to be good. He's a you know engaging enough guy. Where is this going to go? And this is turn on a dime, 
flip a switch completely different than anything you've seen this man do. If you think he, if you, all you can comprehend about Ben is the cuddly Paddington stuff or the cheeky Q stuff, this movie will, will knock you on your butt because he, it's this single, it's this single man story of kind of an unpredictable downward spiral and kind of the isolated damage it causes. He's a man who's a, an airport security worker in London and, you know, kind of beleaguered by his parents not exactly the best love life he doesn't have like massively monologued motivations of, of what's got what's really getting to him but you just see the physical ticks in wishaw's performance that kind of show boy this guy's on edge and can crack at any minute and if he cracks what's he gonna do and the movie uh won a few awards at sundance i think it was the um I'm going to look it up here. Oh, a special kind of jury acting prize for Wishaw and then was nominated for the, uh, the world Germanic competition for, for the film itself. Uh, short film director, Anil Karia kind of making his debut feature here and it's available on VOD. And, um, I recommend it in a, in kind of a buyer beware kind of way, because it's a, it's a very kinetic energy, you know, tuna. I get what, how can I say this a better way? It's a very kinetic energy, gestating film that kind of has the mechanics of slow cinema because you know you're on this isolated character it's kind of building as it goes the movie is scoreless and you just follow this man in his you know like i said downward spiral in his mayhem in this fizzling out but it's shot and i have to kind of buy or beware this part it's shot with absolutely some of the hardest shaky cam i've ever seen now that shaky cam has very long takes that stay with the character as he interweaves into the things and the trouble he gets himself into but which is i can't take my eyes off of because it's it's such a voyeuristic thing to watch him see how far he goes with with just the explosion of what his character can be but it's it's a hard movie to watch in terms of the shaky cam it's a hard movie to watch because it's not a very heroic character that you can really gravitate into and go boy i hope he turns out okay it's it's not going to be that it's just a matter of what is it going to take for him to fizzle out and can he fizzle out without getting other people hurt and fascinating performance from ben wishaw uh for our little critics group little things that we do where we are always trying to pitch nominees this is somebody who makes my shortlist of some of the best uh male performances i've seen this year Mm, yeah, I've I've not had a chance to see that myself. I did see the the trailer for it, and you're right that Wishaw just looks spellbinding. It. I'm I'm really mm-hmm. curious to see him take take this role because you're right that I don't want to say like he's not typecast himself necessarily, but there is kind no. of this this way where he's he's perceived more sort of the 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 slight. Uh, non-threatening uh, sort mm-hmm. sort of actor. I think you know he was recently in uh, the the Adventures of David Copper or the Personal History of David Copperfield. Is Uriah Heep? So he's he's got some some villain roles in his past, but he's not really gone as hard in the paint, I guess, as it looks like he does yep. in Surge. I, I'm curious to know if if he kind of goes. He, he played one of his early roles was I think as a as a killer in Perfume, the story of a murderer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this I'm, is close to that vibe. Okay, so so kind of like taps into the that darkness a little bit for yeah, this film. Yeah. Oh, that sounds that sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to yeah. finally getting a chance to to check it out. It's something well, I can see people loving because it's just because of that interesting thing, and I can see people hating it because it's just almost irredeemable in some moral levels. Well, that sounds intriguing for sure. Uh, my recommendation for this week is actually not a, a movie or TV show, but rather a, a newsletter. I don't know, Don, if you uh, read a lot of the AV Club or the Dissolve back in the day, but uh, I was a huge fan of of pretty much all the critics who wrote for, for those sites once upon a time. And I was really excited to learn recently that two of them, Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps, uh, have started up a newsletter uh, that they call The Reveal. It's free to to sign up to receive some emails. There's also a subscription option where you can kind of pay for, for even more uh, of their great content. And I'm actually tempted to make it the first newsletter that I've actually uh, subscribed to with, with money just because I think that Tobias and Phipps are, in my opinion, two of the uh, best uh, critics uh, working on online uh right now i just think their their writing is tremendous they're always interesting to read they're extremely knowledgeable and with the reveal it's nice to see them kind of just 
take that talent and just follow it and apply it to whatever happens to catch their fancy rather than the the dictates of whatever the new releases on a certain week or what the big headlines are. They kind of just write about whatever. They, their newsletter so far have included pieces about the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. They've written uh, some, some retrospectives on uh, films that have uh, had anniversaries recently. And I think for as young as it is, they've all been just really excellent reading and I'd highly recommend them to anyone. So if any of our listeners are kind of looking for new critics to, to read and new perspectives to explore, I think, uh, Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps's newsletter, the reveal would be a great place for them to start. Excellent recommendation that, that, yeah, the, they're, they're worthy of good work because those sites are, are definitely missed in terms of it as a, you know, I don't want to say an independent voice because of independent film, but just that the independent non big publication voices that are out mm-hmm. there, like things have been gobbled up and reduced and just uh, have failed. So it was a shame to see the dissolve and the AV club kind of go the way they've went. So to, to see those talents be active and engaging and out there is, is an encouraging thing. Yeah, it's I mean, I, I don't need to tell you that it's tough out there for Ooh. for movie critics these days if you want to, you know, get paid and still, you yeah. know, write interesting stuff. So uh, Tobias and Phipps are, are two of the good ones who are just doing great work and, and find ways to make it work. So if I can send a few readers their way, help them help them keep it up, then my work here is done. Uh, but for now, that is the end of our show. Listeners, uh, thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before we leave, uh, Don, is there anything that, that you want to plug, like a recent episode of the podcast or or a piece that you've published somewhere that you'd like to point our listeners to? Sure, Kevin. I'd love to sh- kind of share, just because it's new and it's young, um, the Cinephile History Fit podcast. We are about uh, 26 episodes in, and if you if you don't mind a little bit of surly humor and a good debate, uh, we pick some good topics to kind of roll on. Our recent episode on Venom was was a was a good one because I come in going, "Gosh, guys, this is stupid. You can't have Venom without Spider Man." And then my co-host Will and his guests are like, "But it's so much fun and funny." I'm like, "Oh my gosh, you people are incorrigible." So if if, if you don't mind a little exasperation with your with your movie critiques. Uh, we have a we have a fun little format and a good little show. So, I, I gotta I gotta represent the podcast. Yeah, well, uh, happy to to give you a place to to do that here. Listeners, definitely check that out, and definitely thank you for uh, checking us out this week. Seeing and believing is, of course, brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan, and I'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.